Several years ago, I was leading a small group in my house on Sunday evenings, and it just happened to be one of those, those seasons where just really sweet to see the Spirit of God at work. Uh, we had a small group. We met at 5.30 at my house again on Sunday afternoons, and, and we saw the Spirit of God do some pretty amazing things through, through our gatherings, through our small group. We saw uh, marriages restored, which, of course, is uh, super encouraging. We saw uh, people have their faith strengthened. Uh, we saw one, one man who was 53 years old who, who for maybe 25 years had thought, considered himself a Christian, yet he realized he never really had turned from his sin and repented, put his faith in Jesus. And so he cried out to God in salvation and became a child of God. Again, it was just a, a really sweet spirit. And uh, as we were working through, we worked through a book of the Bible, and I saw God kind of working and dealing with us in a very gracious way. And I thought, you know, I really want to push this group just a little bit. I want to stretch us a little bit in our understanding of the gospel. So what I decided to do was work through a book by Brennan Manning called The Ragamuffin Gospel. Maybe some of you have heard this. It was a best-selling book uh, some 25 years ago. And I wanted to work through that book together because I knew that it was really going to stretch us in terms, again, of our understanding of the gospel. Uh, Brennan Manning was a man who struggled with sin, naturally, as we all do, only his sins were more public than the sins of others. His life was a series of magnificent failures, followed by repentance and restoration, only to see himself fail again. Things like preaching drunk, being caught with women other than his wife, uh, this prominent speaker, best-selling author, struggled with alcoholism, infidelity, a litany of vices, but God used him in remarkable ways. He was a, a man who was one time a Franciscan priest, uh, but he fell in love with a woman and decided he wanted to marry her. And as you know, uh, the Catholic Church, this is not permissible in the Catholic Church, so he left the Catholic Church, left his priesthood, and began writing and serving other people, serving the least of these, um, according to uh, Trent Castro, one university chaplain at a school where Manning spoke said that no one, out of all the speakers he'd ever brought in to speak at chapel, no one spoke to the hearts of the students the way this ex-priest, divorcee, failed alcoholic did. In Manning's last book, which was a memoir, he wrote, Mine has been anything but a straight shot, more like a crooked path filled with thorns and crows, and vodka. Prone to wonder? You bet. I've been a priest, then an ex-priest, a husband, then ex-husband, amazed crowds one night and lied to friends the next, drunk for years, sober for a season, then drunk again. I've been John the Beloved, Peter the Coward, Thomas the Doubter, all before the waitress brought the check. I've shattered every one of the Ten Commandments six times Tuesday, and if you believe that last sentence was for dramatic effect. It wasn't. By his own admission, Brennan Manning's life was a mess. Again, a series of these catastrophic failures. But it must be said he never justified his sinfulness. He never tried to excuse his rebellion or his moral failures. He never gloated about his offenses. But he did understand that for the repentant sinner where, grace, where sin abounds... Grace abounds all the more. You might fall a thousand times, but there's grace for one thousand and one forgivenesses, so to speak. Manning was a man of repentant faith. 
as he was facing death at the age of 77 for something called wet brain, all the drinking. This was in 2013. He summarized his life this way. My life is a witness to vulgar grace, a grace that amazes as it offends. It's not cheap. It's free. And as such will always be a banana peel for the orthodox foot and a fairy tale for the grown-up sensibility. Now, maybe you, you hear that story and you think, how could he be a child of God? Maybe you hear the story that you say, how could he be used by God? Maybe you hear the story and you say, well, I'm really thankful that I'm not like him. Maybe you're offended at the notion that Brendan Manning may share the same table in God's presence that you'll share. Or maybe, maybe when you hear the story of Brendan Manning, you think if God would own someone like Brennan Manning, then maybe he may not be ashamed to call me his own. Maybe Manning's story gives you hope that God cares about the outcast and the repeat offender. We're in the second week of a five-week study through Jonah, and we've already seen that the book of Jonah is not really about the big fish that swallows the man, although that's in there and that's a real historical event. That's not the point of the story. It's really about God's incredible, dare I say, offensive grace. His grace for the outsider, as we saw last week. His grace for the believer, the one who continually runs and rebels. That theme continues as we work our way through the text this morning. Jonah is running from God. He's gone the opposite way that God has instructed he goes down, pays a fare, gets on a boat, really to sever his relationship with God. But God targets Jonah with a storm in order to get Jonah's attention and to show his erring prophet that his grace can't be outrun. Jonah uh, chapter 1, we're going to cover verses 4 through 17. Let me start by reading verses 4 through 6. The word of the Lord reads this way. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, I want to pause there because there's a Hebrew word that's translated hurled. It's used twice in this passage, and it's actually a very important word. Um, the, word the Hebrew word is used elsewhere in the Scriptures to describe a man throwing a spear at someone, like as in 1 Samuel 18, where Saul throws a spear at David to pin him against the wall. It describes one person taking up an instrument and very specifically targeting another person with precision. What the text is telling us here is that God specifically targeted Jonah, this Jonah ship, and sent the storm as a weapon. Now, we have engineers in our church who work with missiles, and um, it's fascinating to hear the stories, for me at least, with, of the sort of accuracy that a, that a missile uh, can, can be used with in terms of finding its target. Uh, one engineer told me this week about a missile, and I'm not sharing any information with you that's, that you could be killed for knowing, by the way. This is, not, this is not classified stuff. This is common knowledge. But there's a missile known as the Flying Ginzu. 
You ever seen anybody do a presentation with Ginzu knives, right? This is called the Flying Ginzu. It is no warhead, only blades that deploy right before impact. And in fact, as this engineer was telling me, it, this, this missile is so accurate that if two cars are parked next to each other, from, from miles away, this missile can be deployed and hit the car of its target without even threatening the other car. So that's pretty incredible to me, that sort of accuracy. But here's the thing. There's no missile system that has the accuracy of the creator of the universe. And when he has someone in his crosshairs, the weapon will land. Now, why is that? Why, why hurl this storm at Jonah as if it were a spear? Here's what's going on. The storm that God causes was a divine act of chastisement on God's own child, Jonah. Here's the point. This is our first point this morning. Even God's discipline is an expression of His grace. Now, I say even because when we think about God's discipline, we almost always think about punishment. God's sort of laying the smack down, but that's not what God does to His own. God disciplines for the point of restoration, bringing someone back. God disciplines us in a, as a way of driving home this fact that contrary to our assumption from conception onward, we're not the center of the universe. And that's actually very, very good news. It's good, for, good news for us that we're not the center of the universe. But we never really get that point fully. And so God disciplines us for our good. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago in a post-Easter sermon the dangers of looking at the Bible as primarily about us rather than ultimately about Jesus. Um, the Bible is actually the story of God's incredible plan of salvation, which centers on His Son. So the Bible is really about the prophecies concerning Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the sinless life of Jesus the atoning death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the impending return of Jesus, Jesus' present mediatorial work for us, His powerful work within us. The Bible is about Jesus. And what I said then is we do ourselves a great disservice and even danger if we look at the Bible as ultimately about us. But, but, to say that the Bible is ultimately about Jesus does not mean that it's not also for us. Of course it is. To say that the Bible is ultimately about Jesus does not mean that there aren't things in the Bible that we're commanded to do. There are things we're commanded to do. God calls His children into a relationship with Him by His grace, and He instructs them how to live in a way that promotes human flourishing. God's commands are for our good in a way that is for our good and the good of others. And when God's children persistently reject that way of living in favor of their own way, God disciplines them as an act of love. Now, maybe you're thinking, that doesn't sound like grace to me. Discipline, that doesn't sound like grace to me. Well, because we talk about grace all the time, it's worth revisiting what we're talking about. Grace does not mean ignoring sin. That's not grace. Grace does not equal spiritual complacency. That's not grace. Grace does not mean condoning unbiblical behavior. Grace does not mean the absence of discipline. And grace does not mean total and unwavering 
tolerance. Grace, as I defined it a few months ago, is God providing for us what we neither deserve nor can provide for ourselves. And sometimes what we really don't deserve is for God to keep pursuing us. Sometimes when we really lock in, in our own stubbornness and our own pride, and we say, you know what, I'm done with God's authority. I'm choosing my own way. I believe my way is best. Sometimes what we don't actually deserve is for God to keep coming after us. But guess what God does? He keeps coming after us by His grace. He does not allow us to wander off on our own in the path of self-destruction. He runs after us again. And sometimes in that pursuit, he disciplines us in order to bring us back to himself, in order to recapture our affections, in order to realign our wills with his will. The British poet Francis Thomas wrote a piece that well describes the nature of God. It was a phrase that C.S. Lewis would also use. It's a small poem called, or actually it's not a small poem, it's a large poem called The Hound of Heaven. I'm going to read you just a small portion. It goes like this. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears I hid from him. But with unhurrying chase and undeterred pace, unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy came on. The following feet. We run, we hide, we try to leave God. He follows after us, reassuring us of His love. When we want to be free from His authority, He surrounds us with His presence. We insist on going our way, and then He brings us back to Himself. We fall prey to the lure of sin, and we believe this can actually satisfy my soul. He halts our sinful path. One New Testament scholar, Richard Phillips, says, God has a chosen instrument to employ in the case of every rebellious Christian. It may be the sickening of the soul, spiritual depression. It may be a physical illness. It may be a career setback. It may be a financial loss. It may be sleeplessness and emotional exhaustion. God will use what he wants to use and in his timing to bring about repentance and restoration. Now maybe you say, well, look, Jonah, Jonah was part of the old covenant. And we're part of the new covenant where Jesus has taken the punishment that we deserve. He suffered the wrath of God for us. We have no need to fear God's punishment for Christ has endured it all for our sake. And to that I say, amen and hallelujah and praise God. That's all true. But that doesn't mean that God no longer disciplines us. The beautiful reality that we are spared from God's wrath doesn't mean that we are exempt from His discipline. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says this on the other side of the cross, mind you. He says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God's discipline is not for our punishment, but to bring us back to himself. 
Now, I have to say this because this is very, very, very important. When we go through bad things, trials, challenges, struggles, setbacks, it does not necessarily mean that we are under the discipline of God. Not every hardship we endure is because we have sin in our lives. Most of the suffering, and yeah, I said most of the suffering we experience is because we live in a broken and sin-cursed world. There's a a very thin line, and it's so easy to cross, and I see people cross it all the time, and I'm prone to that direction myself, and it's, it's this line of moralizing suffering. So we see somebody who's really struggling in their life, and they say, of course we don't say it to them, we say at home, we say, oh, they got, they got some real sin in their life. And we see somebody who's really thriving and their business is prospering and they're healthy and strong and vibrant. We say, now that person's living right. That person's living right. That's karma. That's not the gospel. You can have really, really bad things happen to you. It doesn't mean you're under the Lord's discipline. In fact, sometimes some of the worst things happen to very good people. It has nothing to do with the Lord's discipline. Think about the example of Job. The righteous one who went through, and we, we, we talk about the patience of Job, the suffering of Job. And what did Job's friends say? They say, look, you gotta, you gotta, there's some sin in your life. You may not even know what it is. There's some sin in your life. You've got to figure it out. And what happens? The Lord rebukes them. The Lord rebukes them. Now, of course, think about the person who suffered the most, who actually was the best person ever, and in fact, the perfect human being, the only perfect one. That's the Lord Jesus. He suffered Not just the physical pain of the cross, but his own father turning his face against him. So I say that's that's very, very important because I know how easy it is for us to think in our own minds, well, if I'm going through something bad, then it must be the Lord's discipline. That's not necessarily the case. I was preaching through 1 Peter several years ago, and I made the point that all of the problems that we face are a result of sin, the rebellion of our first parents. And there was a lady who was 77 years old got up and stormed out of the church angrily, made a, made a scene, throwing, you know, knocking. I don't know if she intentionally knocked things over, but uh, she's making a scene, very loud about it. I didn't know what was going on. I mean, I noticed it. I was preaching. I see what's going on, right? But I didn't know what was going on until the next morning I got an email, and she said to me very pointedly, how dare you say that my husband's congestive heart failure is a result of his personal sin? I said, I would never say that. I would never say that. I would never go to someone who's sick and say, you're, you're sick because you have sin. You're, only the Lord knows that. I don't know what's going on. I said, I wish you would have listened to the rest of the sermon. I would never say that. The Bible, and let me say this, and I'm, I'm going to repeat this because I think this is very important too. The Bible doesn't say that all suffering we go through is a result of personal sin. But it does say that all persistent and unrepentant sin brings suffering. So the Bible does not say that all suffering we go through is a result of personal sin, but it does say that all persistent and unrepentant sin brings suffering. In Jonah's case, God's response was swift, immediate, and powerful. But that's not always the way God works. Often God allows us to experience the natural consequences of our rebellion. If we abuse our bodies sinning by gluttony or drunkenness, we will suffer the negative physical effects. If we indulge in perverse thoughts, it will affect our relationships. If we fantasize about getting revenge, thoughts of bitterness will grow and destroy us from the inside out. 
Sometimes God allows us to continue for a season to show us how unsatisfying those sins and those thoughts are and as a way to reveal to us how satisfying He truly is. Now, if I were to be very candid with you, I would tell you that my tendency, this is a moment of confession for me, my tendency when I've been wronged, when I've been hurt, when I've been betrayed, is to be over that person. That's my personal, I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying that's my tendency. Someone harms me, they wrongs me, I say, okay. I don't say this, but what I think is you're dead to me. I'm over you. But this is not what God does. We sin, we rebel, we betray, we revolt, and God is never over us if we belong to Him. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, not even our own stubbornness, not even our own stupidity, not even our own doubts. God discipline, God's discipline is a beautiful expression of His grace and its, expre- and its expression for which we should be grateful. Now let's get back to the story and we'll cover the next two points a little more rapidly. Verses 7 through 11. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. These men are scared to death by this potentially fatal storm. What do they do? They start throwing over cargo. Anything that's heavy, they start throwing it over. And then as the the ship is crashing against the waves and they're hoisting this huge uh, cargo over, they look around and they say, Hey, where's that other guy? What, what happened to that other dude? Like, why isn't he helping us? They realize, well, he's down there asleep. He's sleeping right now. So they wake him up, and they say, what have you done to us? Call out to your God that he might save us. And then they cast lots to figure out who needs to go. Now, in the ancient Palestinian world, lots were kind of like dice, only they didn't have numbers on them. They had a dark side and a light side. And what would happen is they would roll it much like we would roll the dice, and uh, they would roll it, and, it, and if, it, if both dice came up with the dark side up, that meant the answer from whatever deity they were calling out to was no. If both sides came up with light side up, that meant yes. So they got the dice, they threw it the dice out, and they say, well, how about this guy, Abdul? I don't know the guy's name, but that was a very common Palestinian name. How about this guy? Should he go? Okay, dark side up, dark side up, no. How about this other guy? Should he go? Dark side up. How about this guy? He pointed to Jonah. They roll the dice. Light side up. Light side up. They say, uh-oh. Somebody's got to go here, and we think we know who it is. So they say they look at Jonah, and they realize what's going on. They don't really want to do it, though. They don't want to throw him over. They say to him, who are you? This was not a chance to get to know Jonah better. This was no meet and greet. They say, we need to know who you are because we have to know which God we've offended. They say, what do you do? Where are you from? What's your nationality? And then look at verse 9 again. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Have you ever taken personal inventory of your own fears? Have you ever 
maybe written down or thought carefully about what exactly you're afraid of. Some of our fears don't really make sense, do they? I was traveling a few years ago um, from Haberone, Botswana, which is a little country just north of South Africa, to uh, Johannesburg, South Africa. And I was in this little tiny plane. And uh, we, uh, it was the worst experience I've ever had on a plane. We were being tossed around. Um, people were wailing. People were screaming. People were weeping. Seriously, I mean, it was that bad. And for some reason, like I was not the least bit afraid. I was, I was praying, praying for safety, praying for my family. And, it, and, and I wasn't really that bothered by it, even though people were just absolutely screaming out. And then I got to the hotel in Johannesburg, and I got on the elevator, and I pressed the button to go up, and it went up just a little bit, and it stopped. And I just freaked out. I mean, I, could, I, mean, I was so scared that no one was going to ever find me again. And I just thought, what is wrong with me? Like, why is this more terrifying to be stuck in an elevator by myself than being on this plane, being tossed around? Sometimes our fears don't make sense, but Jonah's actually made sense. He's sleeping during this terrible storm, but when they ask him who he is, he said, you know what? I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the creator of everything. In fact, it's probably his fear of the Lord, his recognition of the power and sovereignty of God that enables him to sleep in the middle of the storm. Actually, he's not only not afraid of the storm, but he volunteers himself to be thrown in so that the storm may die down and these other men may be saved. Look at verse 12. He says, pick me up and hurl me back into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. Now, we don't know what Jonah's attitude was when he said this. I mean, he could have been saying it at a, as of, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I know what I've done and I'm willing to suffer the consequences. He could have been saying it that way. He could have been saying it out of frustration. You know, I would rather die than preach a message of repentance to the Ninevites, so just go ahead and kill me now. We, we don't know why he said what he said, um, but I think this was actually a gesture of compassion. And here's what I mean. These Gentile pagans had treated Jonah with respect and patience. When they're crying out to their gods for deliverance, Jonah's not calling out to his god. He's asleep, and yet they don't try to kill him. They ask him questions. When, when the lots show that he's the one who's supposed to be thrown over, they just start rowing harder. They don't want to do it. When they're throwing out everything in the boat that has any weight in a desperate attempt to survive, Jonah's down sleeping, and yet, again, they don't attack him. And I think what's going on is Jonah is starting to warm to these Gentile pagans. He has pity on them. I like what Leslie Allen writes. The character of the seaman has evidently banished his nonchalant indifference and touched his conscience. In other words, moved by compassion, Jonah says, in essence, I'll die for you. Throw me in. I'm willing to die for you. And what he does is he shows us something of the nature of true love, something about God's character. And here's what it is. This is our second point. God's rescuing love involves substitutionary sacrifice. Now, a few weeks ago, I, I, I shared with you how this question has always been on the minds of humanity. Who will pay for the wrongdoing, someone else's wrongdoing? Who will pay for my own wrongdoing? There's, there's been a recognition since the beginning of time, since creation, that when someone is wronged, someone else has to pay. 
okay, that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, humanity has always recognized that wrongdoing must be punished in order for justice to prevail. Someone must pay for sins that are committed. And we actually believe this too. We want justice to prevail. If a man were convicted for crashing into a school bus full of kids and he did so while driving drunk and the judge said, you know what, I'm just going to let it go this time. I'm going to ignore this altogether. We would be outraged, wouldn't we? We would be very upset at that. Someone has to pay. We understand this. Well, someone has to pay for mankind's rebellion against God. Here we are, you and I, and we have disobeyed a perfect and holy God in a thousand ways and counting. Who's going to pay for my rebellion? Who's going to pay for your disobedience? Well, if you go all the way back to Jonah, this idea of substitutionary atonement is present. One man dying so that others can live. One man volunteering himself to die so that people apart from God could be saved from death. This passage, in a beautiful way, is pointing us to Jesus. On the cross, Jesus willingly gave up his own life so that we could be spared from death. He said, in essence, I'll die for you. Throw me in. I'll die for you. The Bible says that God was offended and wronged by mankind's revolt against Him. It was a revolt that took place initially in the Garden of Eden, but the act was universal, at least in one sense, in that it's repeated throughout all cultures and all times by all humans. We revolt against God, and yet God seeks to bring us back and bring us together. And in order to do that, atonement must be made. On the cross, Jesus took our punishment for those who believe He atoned for us. Would you believe this morning that Jonah points us to Jesus? Jesus is the true and better Jonah. Just like Jonah, Jesus was sent to preach a message of repentance to a rebellious people. Only unlike Jonah, Jesus fulfilled that mission perfectly. Just like Jonah, Jesus slept in the bowels of the ship while those around him panicked in fear. Just like Jonah, Jesus spent three nights only in the belly of the earth, only to be delivered by death, by the sovereign, from death by the sovereign God. Jesus is the greater Jonah. And if you don't believe me, go read Matthew 12, where Jesus, self, Jesus himself says, he tells the story of Jonah. He says, behold, someone greater is Jonah than Jonah is here. He says, I am the greater Jonah. Now I want to wrap up this section here, verses 13 through 17. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more uh, tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us the innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now there's something remarkable here that, that happens that's easy for us to miss. Think about who these Joppa Phoenician sailors were, these Gentile pagans. They were idol worshipers. And they had many, many gods. In fact, in, in, 
In the ancient uh, Palestinian world, you had three types of gods. You had personal gods that you would call out to for your own well-being. You had family gods who, who you would cry out to and sometimes even harm yourself so that they would protect your family. And you also had national gods. And so these were, these were folks who worshipped gods like Zeus, the god of the sky and thunder, the god who ruled other gods. And Prometheus, the god who supposedly created man out of clay. And Mercury, the god of commerce. And Venus, the god of beauty. And all these other gods. But here's what happens. They actually renounce their allegiance to these other gods. And with one voice call out to the true and living God. Three times they invoke God's covenant name, Yahweh. Three times the Lord is used by these lifelong worshipers of false deities. One biblical scholar says they confess that this ever-magnifying tempest is fully his action and his sovereign right. The text says they fear the Lord with a great fear. God has shown himself to these sailors, and they have responded with reverence and repentance. And here's the final point I want to make from this passage. God uses even our failures to advance his kingdom purposes. Jonah has failed in just about every way imaginable so far. He has, he has resigned his position as a prophet. He has uh, shaken his fist at God, so to speak, and said, no, I'm going to do the opposite of what you say. He has neglected his prophetic assignment. He has uh, demonstrated a, a recalcitrant heart in not coming along. And yet God works even through that to bring idol-worshiping pagans to repentance and belief in the living God. You know, sometimes I think we feel like, or I know I, know I do sometimes, I've blown it so badly around this person, he's never going to come to saving faith. I, I've missed so many opportunities. I mean, these are opportunities that God has put right in my lap, and I've missed these opportunities. Surely this person is now without hope. Sometimes maybe we think, we're embroiled in conflict. We say, you know, the way that I handle that, there's no way that someone's now going to turn to the Lord in repentance. Or maybe sometimes our kids are, are grow up and they, 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 they become young adults and we say, man, I wish I would have done that differently. If I would have known then what I know now, I would have handled that very differently. But here's the beauty of this. The advancement of God's kingdom doesn't depend on us. We don't have the final say. God does. And even though we fail, God says, I'm going to bring beauty out of it. Even though we blow it, God says, I'm going to bring someone to saving faith through your failure. I'm going to show someone my glory through your rebellion. I'm going to turn what you did, which was wrong and rebellious and disobedient, and I'm going to make good out of it. This is what our sovereign and loving God does. I love the story of Jonah for the same reason I love the story of Brennan Manning, because it gives me hope for me, that there is grace at God's table for me, for people who have fallen so short of God's standard, for people who have missed opportunities and blown it once, twice, a thousand times in the same ways. There is grace. You can't buy it. It's not cheap. But it is free. You just have to receive it as one who's not worthy. You have to recognize that though our sins may be many, His mercy is indeed more. Let's pray.